Welcome to part two of the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast featuring Rob Schmitz, the Shanghai Bureau Chief of American Public Media's Marketplace, interviewed by Anjali Shah. As we pick up here, Rob has been talking to factory workers and uh, in this case, uh, a factory executive uh, by the name of Lewis at Foxconn. Foxconn is the Apple supplier, a major uh, manufacturing uh, company in China that uh, became famous in part because of a series of worker suicides, uh, workers jumping from their dormitory windows. The company responded by putting up a series of nets uh, around those dormitories, um, and it's those nets uh, that uh, Rob begins this section of the interview discussing. We were waiting to get into uh, another factory uh, building, and I was sitting, I was standing there with Lewis, and I just looked up. And I just saw the nets and I just sat there and I looked and I thought about, you know, the first thing you think about when you see these nets are the workers who jumped and it's, you know, it's just terrible and it's tragic. And, you know, I, and then I mentioned, I told Lewis what I was thinking. I said, Lewis, when your clients come in here, this is just so depressing and terrible. You know, why are these nets still up? And he quickly said, they're up because if we can save one life, then that's worth it. And he said, a lot of what we learned when we did our own research after the spate of suicides in 2010 was that some people who want to kill themselves do so on an impulse. And if you can prevent that, then you've saved a life because maybe tomorrow they'll wake up and it won't be so bad. You know, maybe they're not going to be peachy happy, but at least you've prevented something, an impulsive suicide. Of course, people who want to carry it out and are determined will do it, right? But he said, um, he said, you know, and we learned about that. And so we decided to, to, to make a big economic decision and, and, you know, buy all the netting up in Asia for two weeks and construct these. It was very important to us. And, and then I asked him, I said, well, have they saved any lives? Have people jumped? and hit the nets? And he said, yeah, two. I said, what happened? He said, well, one of them died. And he said, but one of them lived. So it has, at least from what we know, from what Lewis told me, it has saved at least one life. And I guess that's, that's one life that Foxconn is happy about saving. The contrarian view mm -hmm. of this situation, though, might be that they put up nets. It's a very visible dramatic thing for them to do to show they care but did they address quality of life did they provide counseling did they do the things that for example in uh, early 2000 2002 the suicide rate amongst college students in the united states was unreasonably high and there was a lot of call for colleges to take action on that but not to put up nets around the whole, whole campus. Well, sure. I mean, it's a visible PR move. And yeah, I mean, we could we could look at that and say, yeah, I mean, there's always context like that, right? You could say, oh, they're only doing it for PR. And, you know, that's a valid point. They also uh, provided counselors. Uh, but at the same time, those counselors worked for Foxconn. 
So I'm not really sure how much, uh, you know, a, a depressed worker is going to trust these counselors, especially if they don't trust their supervisors anyway. I asked to talk to some of the, the therapists and uh, when I realized that they weren't an independent counselor at all, they actually worked for Foxconn. I thought, well, yeah, I can see why people might not want to talk to them. So yeah, there's, I think it's, but you know, like anything in China, this is complicated. And I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's probably both. They probably saw the PR value of it, but they also probably really cared. I mean, I think we dwell on the suicides too much, actually. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the suicides is, is, is a diversion from, I think, the real story. They didn't happen at a level where I would deem it that important. These workers, their universe is this factory campus. You have to understand that this is not just one factory. It's a campus. It's their life. If they want to kill themselves, where are they going to go? They're going to go to the highest building that they know. It's going to be on campus and they'll jump. And also the number of suicides was actually lower than I think the national average was, uh, considerably lower. But a lot of times people don't understand the scale. <laughs> you really have to think about this. Foxconn has 1 million workers. Most of them are assembly line workers. 1 million workers. At what point in our history in the United States do we have a company that had 1 million people making a subset of products? You know, it's, it's, it's pretty, this is, this is pretty unprecedented. Leslie T. Chung wrote this very interesting post in the New Yorker blog about how coverage of workers in China is skewed towards the suicides, the terrible working conditions. But reporters often forget to ask the questions about what this kind of factory work has done to improve life or right. how it's been good for people. Have you worked on these kinds of stories and what are your your thoughts about the workers who really appreciate that work that they have? Well, that comes out naturally if you just talk to workers. And I, that's not something you have to even work at. If you do your job as a journalist, these are the stories that you'll hear. If you don't do your job and you're an irresponsible journalist, you will be looking for the minority, I think, that has maybe this really serious, serious complaint. And then you focus on that, and then you make these grand deductions from this small minority. Um, that's not to say we should ignore that minority, but it's part of a multifaceted reality. The mo- most of the workers that I spoke with, even though many of them had complaints, they were, for the most part, they were minor complaints. And for the most part, they were there for a reason. They made the decision to work there because it was a good job and because it gave them more money than they would make at another factory. And because the other alternative, other than working at other factories, was to go home and perhaps to to fall back on farming is what their parents were doing. And um, when you farm in China, especially if you're farming rice, you're doing the same repetitive motion all day for 12 hours a day in water and in manure and you're in the elements and it rains on you and you're with a water buffalo if you're lucky and you go you go back and uh, you know you're you know you're you're you don't make as much money as you would in a factory the the other alternative is to go to a factory you have a roof over your head you work fewer hours you're making more money um, and, and you're in a more comfortable living situation. I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer for a lot of these folks. I, I had it in my mind that I would follow the money that one of the workers made back to his home village to see how it was being spent. 
I anticipated that we would tell the story of, of someone building a home or building a house, doing something material that we could see and take photos of. And there would be a, a nice little neat story about how the money moves uh, on the most rudimentary and fundamental sense in China, right? And the most basic level, how money moves from the factory to the village. And so this was a great romantic idea. And so I found a worker who said, yeah, you can go to my home village. And, and he, he told me his name was Logofen. He told me uh, that he had saved around uh, uh, 10,000 renminbi in, in, the, in the previous year and that he had sent it uh, home. And, and he, this money was being used um, to pay for his brother's vocational college education and also to be used to build uh, an addition to his uh, parents' home. And he was very proud of that. I went uh, to his village, a 12-hour bus ride to his village in rural Jiangxi province. And when I arrived there, uh, his mom was standing in front of a pile of bricks. Uh, you know, this was the addition. The addition was, it was happening. I said, wow, you must be so proud of your son for paying for this. And, and you know, this is great. And she kind of looked at me funny and she smiled and she motioned me to come back in away from the other relatives that were standing in the courtyard. And, uh, you know, she said, you know what? our son's actually not paying that much for this addition. Most of the money is being paid by myself and by my husband. And then she went on a litany, a diatribe about her son saying that he was lazy and everything he ever did, he had a half-ass approach to everything in his life. And that's why he ended up at a factory and it was so stupid that he went to the factory and he was doing exactly what all the other young people in the village do. They just go to factories and they're all lemmings and they're stupid and, and they do the same thing over every day and it destroys their brain and it doesn't teach them anything about doing business and why isn't he doing that? I mean, I, I was listening to her for about half an hour complain about her son the younger son whose college education was paid for by the older son's earnings was standing there and I looked over at him and he wasn't saying anything. And then the mom left for a little bit and I looked over at him and I said, aren't you going to defend your brother? He paid for your education. You're an engineer because he paid for your education. And he said, but it's my mom. So he couldn't say anything. So it was, this was the complicated reality. People and are people. People are people. And it's never, it's the narrative is never simple. It's always a little more complicated, especially if you dig and you actually do the real reporting. And that's okay. And that's just as interesting as a simple narrative, a black and white narrative. It's actually, in my, in my opinion, I think it's more interesting as long as you tell it in a way that's compelling. And that's, that's my goal. And truthful. Of course. I'm picturing in my head the wonderful documentary from just a few years ago, The Last Train Home. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar yeah, with it. Yeah, I saw but, it. Um, that idea of telling a China story based on people, it sounds so simple. On the other hand, we don't get it that often. Um, I, uh, I just wrote a piece uh, for Miller McCune magazine, now Pacific Standard, about... Um, Catherine Boo's lovely book about Mumbai slums behind the beautiful forevers. And it occurred to me, we see a lot of these stories about, particularly about poverty in India. Mm. And people follow the people closely in their personal stories. They're up close. They're slumdog millionaire in journalistic form. But we don't see that in China very often. 
is there something about China appetite for news or the difficulties of reporting in China that you think has made the focus different in China than it is in other developing countries? That's an interesting question. I don't think that it's 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 we're not being impeded here by the people. Um, Chinese people, I've found, are very easy to talk to, uh, as long as you know what you're doing and you approach it in a way. Uh, at least for me, uh, when I talk to folks with a microphone, and believe me, I've got a it's a big microphone that I've got, and I'm sticking it in their face, you know, I'm not a print journalist. I think print journalists actually have it a lot easier, right? They just have a little notebook and, you know, you can sort of hide the fact that you're a journalist sometimes, but there's no question about it. When I'm speaking to someone, they know I'm a journalist. I've got a microphone. Um, it's not difficult at all, especially when you leave the city and you actually talk to folks out in, in the countryside. Sure. You're going to say, you're going to see people saying no, and I don't want to talk to you. And, uh, you know, I don't feel comfortable with that, but that's, you'd get that anywhere. You get, I mean, as Americans, when you go on a street, like I'm, I'm downtown LA and I, I've got a microphone, believe me, I will clear the sidewalk. No one will be walking near me. And uh, you know, you, you sort of, sort of feel like a, a panhandler in China. It's actually easier to do this. And I think part of the reason is I'm, I'm foreign looking for them. I speak Chinese and so I'm an oddity, right? And so they finally see a foreigner who they can, you know, they can communicate with. And so they have questions of their own. And so you capitalize, of course, on that mutual curiosity. I'm not really sure if, if the reportage on China is missing those human voices. I think they're there. I just think sometimes they get drowned out by the bigger issue and trying to make a very important statement, a forward-looking story that breaks new ground I would like to see or I'd like to hear or read more journalism that that doesn't necessarily have to make a point and spell it out for me, but maybe doesn't even go anywhere. Because I think that's more true to life. When I'm standing in China and I'm trying to figure out what's going on, a lot of these narratives don't go anywhere at all. They're sort of confusing and they sort of go in circles and they take curves here and there that you don't expect. And that's okay. And I don't think a narrative has to take this. You don't have to make a grand point in every story that you do. But I think, I think that as journalists, we're oftentimes chained to this, uh, this anchor of, okay, it has to be a story with a beginning, middle, and ending, and it's got to end on this note, and you got to make your nut graph here, and this is your, you do that. And, you know, it's so formulaic. I'm happy that I'm encouraged to uh, take risks. I, I can tell a story that has a slightly different narrative and that maybe doesn't go anywhere. The conclusion might be very different depending on who's listening to it. I think that's okay. I think that's actually more true to life. So I think, you know, people like Leslie and her husband, Pete, Pete Hessler is actually really good at this. You know, Pete is able to, a lot of, a lot of his stories on China really end you know, not where you would expect them. All of a sudden it's just over <laughs> and it makes you think a little, right? That's probably why he won a mm -hmm. genius, MacArthur yeah. genius. Group. Right. And, and it makes you think a little more than, oh, and it makes you do a little more work as a reader. It makes you think, right? And I think that that's okay. And that's what we should be doing um, instead of having, everyone, having the journalists spell it out for us. We should be telling stories. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should just be more accurate about the stories. I ran as fast as I could through the corridor.
After completing this Apple economy series, do you think the Foxconn model, this labor economy of China, is sustainable? Or do you see some changes in that workforce? Do you think they're looking for something more? Do you think they have more leverage now and that it'll change the way that labor system works? Will it change because of the the awareness factor now? Or the is that what you mean? Is China facing a labor shortage? Sure. Leslie Chang wrote Factory Girls, I think, five years ago. In that time, you know, she, she wrote about this great migration that was happening of, of, of uh, migrant workers coming from the countryside, you know, traveling days to get to the coast and to do work at factory towns, right? And factory towns are all located on the coast and they have been for years. Uh, in the time that that book has been published, things are starting to already change. Now what we're seeing is a different migration of sorts. Um, factories now are starting to pop up in places like, for example, when we talk about Foxconn, biggest private employer in China, their two newest factories are located in Zhengzhou, which is in Henan province, and in Chengdu, which is in Sichuan province. These are the two provinces that contribute the most migrant workers uh, to the coast. So Foxconn made a decision to migrate the factories to where the workers were coming from. That decision has also been made by many other manufacturers. And so we're starting to see the manufacturing move inland to where the workers actually are from. This is good for the companies that own these factories because they pay lower wages. Um, they're in provinces that don't have a, a growing labor movement like Guangdong has. And they're being subsidized by local governments that are trying to attract more business, especially in places like Chengdu. It's good for the workers uh, because they're closer to their families. You know, where before they were two days away from their families and they could only see them once a year, and these are their own children, they are now, you know, at the most within you know a few hour driving distance, so that they can actually see them on the weekends. Think of the change that's going to have on a worker's family. You know, for years, you've had children growing up with no parents. They were growing up with grandpa and grandma, and they never saw mom or dad. Mom or dad, you know, were, were just gone. They weren't, you know, they had a sort of a notion of who they were, but they saw them once a year. It's also going to have a profound change on the environment. Try getting something from Chengdu to port. How do you do that? You put it on trucks. And those trucks will, will go a thousand miles to the coast, right? So I think we're going to see uh, a worsening environment, you know, in China, of course. And I think that it's just going to get worse and worse. And I think that's going to be the next, you know, it, it will continue to be, I think, the biggest story in China. And it should be a bigger one than, than the stuff that we're covering right now, I think. If an American reader wants to know more about China, what are your five favorite books or media to follow? Well, I mean, I think that I think that we already mentioned one of them, Factory Girls from Leslie Chang. I mean, it's a phenomenal piece of work, and it it gives you, uh, I think, uh, I don't think anyone spent more time with with factory workers and and produced such an interesting piece of work. 
Um, I'm going to be biased here and go with Peter Hessler, who was my uh, fellow Peace Corps volunteer in my group. So I'm a little biased. Um, but I think every single book of his is worth reading, um, especially uh, I, I really in particular for country driving. I really like that book and I like the last chapter in that book. Uh, I think it's one of the best chapters ever written on China. It's surprisingly hilarious. Pete accomplishes something that uh, you know few authors do. Um, China is a hilarious place. Uh, when you live there and you speak Chinese and you talk to Chinese and you're friends with Chinese, that sense of humor is so obvious. It's you know, people get the joke in China. It's it's just a funny place, and things that are happening all around you are funny. You know, you, not a day goes by where I don't laugh at something. And Pete captures that really well in almost like a Mark Twain sort of way. And I think that that's great. I wish more authors could capture that because China is funny. And we take China so seriously, you know, so serious. Oh my gosh, are they going to take us over? Are they, you know, so, so serious. You know, you know, it's not that we don't need to be so self-important about this. You know, it's, it's, just, a, it's just a country. It's just a, it's a, they're people just like us. And, you know, you know, humor also humanizes the country. And I think that, you know, Pete, Pete really gets down on the human level and spends a lot of time with people, which is, you know, what we were talking about before. So I think every book of his, you know, the three books, uh, Rivertown, Oracle Bones, and Country Driving are, are worth reading. Um, I'm going to plug a book that uh, has yet to be published. Um, uh, Adam Minter, who... Uh, writes for The Atlantic, and he writes for Bloomberg, and he's written for National Geographic, Foreign Policy. Um, Adam has had the unusual position of being an accredited journalist with uh, uh, a recycling, scrap metal recycling trade magazine for years. He has been to over 150 factories in China, and he has a book coming out called Wasted, that I think is going to be extremely interesting about the global recycling trade. And uh, much of it is based in China and through his own experiences. And so I think when that comes out, I, I think it's, it's going to be quite good. Thanks so much for being with us, Rob. Thanks a lot, Angela. This has been the LA Review of Books podcast. You can find more at losangelesreviewofbooks.org. <laughs> Thank you.